So far, we have touched on some of the history of the Canadian labor movement, the activist backgrounds and skills of my three interviewees, and their accounts of one of their more noteworthy participations in protests on the Hill. But beyond recounting one single episode in their long careers as activists or explaining the logistics of organizing demonstrations, I wanted Barb, Arthur, and Bob to get into some of the more nitty-gritty and distinguishing elements of protest. What lessons had they taken away about the nature of protest? I also wanted to explore just what they thought about Parliament Hill itself. What makes it so special? So, in this vein, we move past the PSAC strike of 1991, and Barb, Arthur, and Bob shared a great number of other stories and experiences with me, some of which, unfortunately, I could not fit into the podcast. What I can sum up for you from their stories, though, is that their wisdom and perspectives regarding protest, activism, so many different political issues, and Parliament Hill itself came directly from their lived experiences. Their particular understandings of Parliament, for example, and their sense of ownership over it, came not just from their identity as Canadians, but from their many years of building direct connections to the place through their activism. By the same token, they also had to learn about some of the darker aspects of protest firsthand, such as the media's miscoverage of their protests and police intimidation of activists. For example, Barb mentioned a protest where they picnicked on the hill in opposition to the government's policy of separating unions in the wake of the 1991 strike. Over the course of more than 25 years, she's had to deal with the fact that even when you win something, a political issue never really dies, and you have to keep fighting to hold on to your past achievements. Arthur, on the other hand, described a protest where a large number of taxicabs clogged traffic on the hill, causing holdups for such prestigious people as the sergeant-at-arms and the head of the RCMP, who were both on their way up to the center block of Parliament. Arthur has come to truly appreciate that civil disobedience can get the attention of those in power and physically affect their lives, even if it is in some minor or routine way. And Bob had some of the most interesting lessons to share, focusing on some of the internal conflict and politics that can take place within a union or group of activists trying to decide on the best course of action. It may seem obvious, but the internal debates between demonstrators are essential, and probably just as important as the debate that they are trying to have with the government when they begin demonstrating together. Bob also stressed the solidarity between activists and their various causes. He described a mentality of a, I will support your cause and you will support mine. And this mentality manifests itself not just in Canada domestically, but also globally and transnationally. Global activist movements cut across borders and countries. Finally, Bob pointed out that an important part of building this solidarity with one another was as simple as going out and performing a protest together, meeting new people, listening to each other's really bad speeches, and getting a catchy political chant going. It's important in, in a democratic organisation for, for the members to have a way of being involved. And participating on a picket line or participating in a demonstration is a way to, in fact, become involved. You know, when, when we're walking along Rideau Street with our friends or with people who we don't know, you know, we are saying to one another, hey, we agree, hey, we're right, hey, we've got a point to make. Together we're improving the world. It may be enlightened self-interest, but we are doing something that makes the world a better place. A lot of demonstrations involve speeches, and, and some of them are great. I mean, I, for example, heard Matthew Kunkan talking about Parliament Hill being unceded Algonquin land. 
and, and that was when it hit me. I got it. I, I don't think I'd ever had that explained to me before, but I got it. But, but one of the problems with lots of demonstrations is when you've got lots of different groups that are helping to organise, they all want someone to speak. And, and it can really, uh, it can be a problem. Um, if you've, even if you've got 15 good speakers, by the time you get to number eight or nine, it's probably too much, even if they're good. And people aren't always good speakers. I know that the last demonstration I was at on the hill was a climate change demonstration. David Suzuki was one of the speakers. And people who I, I was with, we were used to boring speakers, but even we left before Suzuki was on because it was just a bit too much. I, I think chants are a really important part of demonstrations. I think it was the PSAC that first came up with, hey, hey, ho, ho, Lion Brian's gotta go, hey, hey. It really brings people together. And various organisations that I've been involved with, they develop chants before. And they have people with bullhorns and their job is to lead the chanting. I, th I think that's an important part of it. Often, just picking up on that, a chant that everybody knows is very welcome because people have a response to doing anything together because we are, we are who we are biologically. And there's a feeling that comes from being in a group and, and being in unison with other people. Uh, I think that when people are creative and chants that that, uh, that adds something. The workers united will never be Sure. Acting together, sharing speeches, and chanting in unison do the important work of building community and a sense of accomplishment amongst protesters. But for a demonstration to have any clout or success, it needs an audience. And who exactly did they think their audience was, I wondered. Surprisingly enough, each one of them had a different response, although they did agree on the importance and potential of the media in getting their message out to Canadians more generally. As a participant, I looked at it as we were talking to Parliament, well, to the members of Parliament, voicing our obvious dis you know, dissatisfaction with whatever it was that we were up there to demonstrate against. But... Yeah, there would have been the aspect of getting it out onto the news to, so that the greater community could see it. You know, if it went national, then it, it got national coverage. You were talking, you were showing Canadians, rank-and-file Canadians, that people were dissatisfied with stuff that uh, the members of Parliament were doing. That's from my point of view. Holding a protest on Parliament Hill to grab the attention of the government and lawmakers themselves does seem like the most direct method of communication. But, as Barb and the others knew, actually having these lawmakers listen to what you were saying and respect the points you were trying to make can be very difficult. This is where the media can come in and help broadcast your demonstration to Canadians more widely and perhaps get them on your side. But Arthur, on the other hand, was more cynical about the news media and their intentions when reporting on protests. He gave one example where PSAC members and senior citizens came together to protest the government's treatment of both groups. If you looked at a wide shot of the demonstrators, uh, you would see a couple of hundred people with PSAC signs. If you looked at a tight shot, uh, you would see the senior citizens from Banyan. All of the media coverage was the tight shot. It, it, it appeared as if the whole demonstration had been seniors. 
But how did the media process? Did they talk about um, the the union people there? No. Did they did they portray the union people there? No. Did they quote the union people there? No. With the media approach, you single out a particular thing which resonates uh, with the message that you want to get across, and you ignore the actual context of what was there. Could there have been a story that unions were out doing something in favor of rights of seniors? That would have been a very legitimate story. A famous example of this can be found in the way that certain newspapers covered the 1935 on-to-Ottawa trek. You will recall that Prime Minister Richard Bennett refused to engage with the workers who were making their way to Ottawa and asking for changes to federal assistance and economic policy during the Great Depression. Instead, he set the RCMP on the protesters to put an end to their campaign. The Globe and Mail, an influential newspaper at the time, covered the trek and the aftermath of the conflict between protesters and police. Much of the paper's coverage focused on Bennett's condemnation of the workers as communist radicals, and the paper sought out interviews with any disillusioned protesters who would criticize the march. Quotes from leaders of the protest and any form of discussion of their legitimate grievances were sidelined or ignored. On the other hand, however, the Toronto Star was much more willing to report on the actual grievances of the protesters and to criticize the Prime Minister's conduct. That said, some have suggested that the Star was willing to do this in part because its proprietor, Joseph Atkinson, was not only deeply devoted to civil liberties, but was also a close friend of the Prime Minister's political arch-rival, William Lyon Mackenzie King, the man who ended up beating the Prime Minister in that year's election. These examples fit into a long history of unbalanced and lopsided news coverage of political issues in Canada and reinforce both the subjective nature of the media and the fact that those tasked with informing larger, more national audiences on strikes and protests typically have their own stake in how the story is told and which stories get to be told in the first place. So, getting back to audiences, it would seem that protesters on the Hill are attempting to speak to a variety of different groups. Members of Parliament, the government itself, the media, and Canadians across the country. Bob had a fascinating take on who he thought the audience of a protest might be. Yeah, I... I would say that part of the audience is the demonstrators themselves. We're talking to one another. There's the media, who we hope will pass the message on to the general public, but they, they don't always pass on the message that we want, and in fact they often pervert the message. And yeah, we want to make a political statement to the employer or the government of the day, or even other political parties, the opposition, because we want them to support us, even if the government doesn't. But there is this thing about a demonstration where it allows us as demonstrators to talk to one another. I think that's a really important part of it. Because if you send a letter to your MP, no one else is part of that. But when you're all together in a demonstration, you're talking to one another. Again, just as Bob stated earlier, the conversations that protesters have with each other are just as important as the ones they're trying to start with their other audiences. Debate amongst themselves allows for activists to exchange ideas, develop their cooperation with one another, and strengthen their convictions. Arthur concluded our conversation on the topic of audiences. I guess part of the uh, feeling I have when I'm there is that it's speaking truth to power and uh, that uh, the government of the day, as Bob mentioned, is always an important part of it. If you have the best spin doctors and the best message massagers and all that, and yet when you look out your window you see large numbers of people who are not buying it, I think that affects the political dynamic. 
And again, if you're in opposition and you find that in the House you're getting bayed at and procedurally screwed around and, and people are shouting all kinds of things when you try and talk, that can be very daunting. And yet if you look out the window and you see large numbers of people who are agreeing with what the points you're trying to get on the parliamentary record are, that stiffens your spine. So you're speaking truth to power and power in the both aspects of it, which is the people who are in government and the people who are potentially government. Arthur's last comment really resonated with me. Even though it is all too easy for members of parliament to ignore the recommendations of various peoples and constituencies, by loudly voicing discontent, protesters on the Hill may at least give MPs and the government pause to reconsider their agendas and actions. Or, on the other hand, they might give ammunition to those in parliament who are firmly opposed to the government's agenda. It should be noted that Barb, Arthur, and Bob's perspectives on audiences have underlined the very important ability of Parliament to attract attention. Going to the Hill, of course, gives demonstrators the opportunity to go to the workplace of parliamentarians and address them more directly than most other citizens will ever have the chance to. As well, because national news media already gives Parliament so much time and consideration as it is, demonstrators can grab the attention of journalists relatively easily and can thus better disseminate their messages more broadly. Of course, they still need to bear in mind the pitfalls associated with the media's coverage of protests. But there is more to Parliament than just its many audiences. Parliament is also exceptional as a space for protesting because of the symbolic value and power it has been invested with today and throughout Canadian history. From childhood, Canadians from the Pacific to the Atlantic Oceans are bombarded with specific ideas about what Canada means and what it means to be Canadian through imagery and stories found in school curriculum, museums, film, literature, television, radio, and even such things as statues, monuments, our currency, and postage stamps. The various symbols that uphold these ideas become ubiquitous across the country and around the world. Just think of hockey, Beavers, the North, and multiculturalism, for example. And ever since Confederation, due in no small part to the efforts of the Canadian government, Parliament has fit prominently into the widely disseminated official narrative of Canadian nationalism. Slowly but surely, it has become a sacred symbol of our democracy, national unity, and progress as a nation. Whether Parliament is an accurate representation of these things is beside the point. Accordingly, for many Canadians, Parliament is a special place with a special role in their identity as a Canadian citizen. Whether you're from Quebec, Alberta, or Nunavut, and even whether or not you've actually visited the site itself. In fact, thousands of Canadians every year make their pilgrimage to the hill, especially during Canada Day celebrations. So, when it comes to the consumption of news articles, broadcasts, or stories about the place, it isn't difficult for Canadians to imagine the space in their mind's eye, or to draw a personal connection between themselves and whatever drama might be going on in Parliament. All of this to say that being on the Hill, and especially making a political statement in the presence of Parliament, has a certain political cachet that activists cannot get from demonstrating at other sites. Just as tourists are willing to make trips to the Hill all the way from Vancouver to Ottawa, so too are protesters willing to make the long trek across the country. Because the site of a protest is one of its most significant elements. Location truly makes a difference. And this is why you will find anti-choice protesters specifically picketing abortion clinics, indigenous peoples and their environmentalist allies blocking pipeline construction and development, and Black Lives Matter protesters speaking up in front of police stations. 
But what makes Parliament so unique is that it serves as the ultimate stage on which our national political arguments, discussions, and conflicts are waged. Sure, all of these groups have their preferential spaces for voicing and displaying their grievances, but each and every one of them could conceivably put on a demonstration on the Hill as well. In fact, they all already have. And although we technically have our democratic representatives in Parliament to engage in national discussions on our behalf, the protests on the Hill represent citizens taking a more direct involvement in national political conversations, as opposed to letting other, more powerful political actors speak for them. Arthur recognized this and put it quite succinctly. There are people that come out on the Hill, do they see that Parliament is an expression of the power system, and they see that as having an importance. The space outside on the lawn is the public theater. Part of the process is to go to that particular uh, few hectares of real estate and to, to use it as a political stage for conducting political theater. And I don't mean theater in a dismissive sense. I mean, people are demonstrating in the sense that they are um, displaying, they are asserting a particular point of view, and they are uh, witnessing their beliefs by their personal presence. So, just as members of parliament get to indulge in theatrical political displays by dramatically shouting their political rhetoric at one another in the House of Commons, protesters engage in much the same public spectacle, but on the lawns of Parliament Hill. They add substance and flair behind their political convictions and discourse by being present in the so-called physical spaces of democracy and of Canada as a whole. In spite of all this, however, Parliament has also taken on non-political meanings throughout its history and has come to mean something very different for locals and people who engage with the Hill on an everyday basis. Barb saw fit to acknowledge this. Something that they've started to do in the last few years on Parliament Hill is they're having yoga classes one day a week in the summer. Yoga being very peaceful, very calming, and maybe there's a symbolic reason for doing it on the hill to try to bring some, some calming effect to the, the people that are in the big building. You know, it's, it's kind of neat on the news in the summer when you see say, 100 people out doing yoga at lunch on, on Parliament Hill. Because, I mean, I think it's important that we realize that people go there not just for demonstrations and, and to voice dissent with what's going on, but also just to take in the atmosphere and be there and go, this is the seat of my government, or um, it's a beautiful spot. The views from Parliament Hill are gorgeous. Tourists are there all the time. Uh, they go and check out the Centennial Flame. And I think... That for tourists coming in, they always really enjoy checking out the sites and that sort of thing, so that there's just that general aspect of Canadian history that they sort of look at. I was very happy with Barb's comments, because Parliament already has so many different non-political meanings for me personally, and because it is important to recognize that it is more than just a political space. Barb's comments encouraged me to go back and visit the Hill on a fresh, windy Wednesday afternoon during one of the first yoga sessions this summer. Arriving on the hill, I came across the front lawn which was full of local university students, public service employees, parliamentary staffers, and so many others on their lunch break, engaging in their hour-long yoga session to the sounds of Parliament's carillon playing the national anthem. 
It was like an ocean of warrior poses. Curious tourists snap photos while members of parliament race back and forth between buildings. In terms of the sheer volume of people present, this yoga session felt just as potent to human force as any protest I'd ever witnessed before. But with all the hustle and bustle and the sounds of construction on the West Block building in the background, I imagine it must have been pretty hard for anyone to actually attain any true relaxation. What I found truly inspiring about this whole scene before me was the simple fact that we could all be here in the first place. Anyone off the street could come in for lunch on a bench, a bike ride up to the front doors, or a game of catch on the lawn. And of course, people off the street do all of these things almost every single day. Yet as these thoughts crossed my mind, I was reminded of the decade-long construction project that awaits the center block building of Parliament beginning in 2018. This project will most certainly entail limited public access to the hill, which will negatively affect both recreational visitors and protesters alike. I just so happened to have brought this subject up with my interviewees. At first, Bob seemed undeterred by potential threats to the accessibility of the hill as a space for protesting. People will always find places to demonstrate. The hill is very valuable as a symbolic place, but there are other places that could be symbolic as well. And in countries where demonstrations in the streets are very, very difficult, people protest and demonstrate in other ways. So I think it would be unfortunate. I mean, at various times they've spoken about putting gardens on the hill so that you couldn't have large masses congregating there. I think it would be unfortunate if that happened, and I would rather it didn't happen, but if people feel a need to protest, then they will protest. And where you do it, or the way that you do it, is in a sense not as important as the fact that people in fact do protest, even in the most repressive regimes. But Arthur, on the other hand, disagreed to an extent, stating that Parliament was especially important to protesting. In fact, he had much to add about other potential threats to people's ability to protest beyond simple construction projects. There's a problem with commercial privatization of the space where what were, where streets become malls, and then the right to participate is owned by somebody. The reason for doing it is you want to shut people the hell up. So I, I agree in general that there will always be tactics you can use and there will always be a locus for dissent. But I think that the, the trend is, I don't think you disagree, Bob, that the trend over the last few years has been to privatize more and more of the Agora, the marketplace, the, the place where we all should be able to express ideas. That's true. Yeah, I agree. About two blocks away or three blocks away from the hill, there's a bridge that goes over Rideau Street. And a, a fellow that all of us know was um, arrested for leafleting in that space. However, when the city had given the rights to the mall developer to enclose Freeman Street, the judge found that the uh, city could give the right to build infrastructure on city property, but that it was a constitutional issue that people could express opinions there and that they couldn't privatize the right to protest on Freeman Street and the location where he was leafleting was the former Freeman Street. And I can remember uh, a Food Not Bombs demonstration on the, um, on the bridge, which is a major bus thoroughfare in front of National Defense Headquarters. And uh, again, everybody was arrested, but the judge came back and said, no, I mean, people have a right to protest. Although the courts have seemed to defend people's rights to protest in public spaces, and Arthur did go on to list off a few different tactics for dealing with the privatization of the spaces of protest, he also brought up an even more potent threat to public political demonstration. The lawmakers who get to define and control the official legitimacy of political action. 
there is an agenda that uh, wants to define disagreement with the government as disloyalty, as sedition, as a criminal activity that the full force of law can be brought down upon. Uh, and sometimes this approach has been imported into Canada. And so on Parliament Hill, uh, we've seen, for example, the um, uh, Greenpeace uh, unfurling a banner and being treated as if they were criminals. That's an important distinction, and uh, there is always a group that wants to criminalize dissent, and there is always a group that needs a constantly bigger and bigger and bigger budget so that they can have more and more scary stuff to use on people. Here, Arthur is referring to those tasked with managing and policing public protests and demonstrations. The line between maintaining security and safety versus disrupting and controlling political activity has always been a messy and complex one that has constantly been fought over by authorities, activists, and the media. That said, as complicated as that line can be, police, military, and intelligence personnel have always been tasked with fulfilling both roles, officially and unofficially. While in recent years police forces have undergone a form of militarization and have cracked down even harder on public demonstrations, protesters throughout history, both peaceful and otherwise, have often come into violent interaction and conflict with security, police, and military force. There is obviously the example of the Regina riot at the end of the On to Ottawa trek that I have already described, but other notable examples of open violence include the 1919 general strike in Winnipeg and the Oka crisis between Mohawks in Quebec and the provincial and federal governments. In terms of clandestine disruption, police have broken into, stolen, and destroyed the property of various political dissidents, like Quebecois separatists, for example. So, just as we have seen with the media, the forces of order, as Arthur came to describe them, are also political actors in the democratic process, with their own interests and intentions when it comes to protest. And when their interests do not align with activists, and the two groups come into heated interaction... Activists the world over become quite frustrated. Uh, it's very frustrating dealing with the forces of order. Sometimes we see them intimidating people with, uh, you know, meter-long truncheons. Sometimes we see them using sound cans, which can deafen you at, uh, at 500 meters. Uh, sometimes we see them infiltrating crowds and acting as agents provocateurs. And it's tiresome. The idea that people demonstrating uh, a political will and an analysis in the place where decisions are made in a democratic country becomes a problem for the forces of order, becomes a proper business for the forces of order, uh, is definitely um, anti-democratic. Arthur had some examples to share of excessive force as well as direct provocation on the part of security forces. I can remember the uh, 2001 demonstrations about the free trade area of the Americas where there were uh, more than 6,000 rounds of tear gas fired. They fired so much tear gas that it actually got in the air ducts of the hotel where the conference was taking place. <laughs> and that wasn't really what they intended to do. I've also seen times when the, the uniformed forces are used to try and disrupt political activity and are, and are trying to control political activity. At another demonstration that wasn't at the Hill in 2007, uh, Bob and I were in Montebello, Quebec, where three officers of the Sûreté de Québec, uh, disguised as demonstrators, were throwing rocks at, uh, at the police lines. 
except for the fact that they had worn their nice shiny policeman type boots. I'm not sure it would have been easy to identify them, but as the police dragged them off, you could see the boots on them. And, and they, uh, so there, there is an agenda where people provoke activities and then they can make the story, you know, violence. And then the story of the issue disappears. But of course, the relationship between demonstrators and security forces was not all bad all the time, as Arthur was quick to point out. I've been involved with different regimes over different periods of time. And sometimes it would be a matter of, you know, I would pull up at an RCMP control point and they would know I was coming and I would sign in and I would come in in advance. They would check and see, yes, you have a loud speaker, you know, you have speakers in the back of the truck and you have a bunch of picket signs in the back of the truck. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with having a degree of organization where you expect organizations to, to go through a reasonable democratic control and you expect people to pick up after themselves and not leave the whole place covered with, uh, with trash. Finally, in light of Arthur's points... Barb returned to the topic of Parliament Hill, re-emphasizing the symbolic importance and uniqueness that the place has. You know, if the, if the hill gets closed down and shut down, uh, to me that's just an, a sign that we've become more American. The American style of, you know, shutting everything away and, uh, yeah, you can dissent, but don't do it here. We've always been able to go and raise our voices and it's a symbol of Canada. It's a symbol of of democracy in Canada. We have enough trouble right now with the way things are going. We've seen so many things go down the tubes that are, you know, so uniquely Canadian. This is another uniquely Canadian thing that we need to keep and to keep that freedom to be able to go and speak our dissent. So uh, hopefully, it, well, you know, we just take to the streets. Mm-hmm. We'll just shut down the whole city, right? That's what people will do. You know, you've seen the city shut down, like when the farmers come in with the tractors and on their way to Parliament Hill, right? And they they slow down things. Well, you know, that's, we'll just have to take to the streets. From this statement and from the rest of the time I've spent with Barb, Arthur, and Bob, I came to truly appreciate their dedication to protest and activism, to their right to engage with the spaces of Parliament Hill, and to each other. For them and for many others, protests can end up being much more than a strategic means to a political end. As I listened to their experiences, I came to realize that sometimes, whether or not a demonstration actually achieves its desired results is beside the point. There is so much more to the story than success or failure. Protesting acts to develop and uphold networks of like-minded peoples, bringing together friends and strangers alike. It creates a sense of community and facilitates mutual cooperation and support. For better or for worse, it can start constructive discussions and change minds, while also risking shouting matches and stoking reactions of opposition. It provides participants with a sense of accomplishment and participation that can feel much more potent than voting in an election. Many will attest to the feeling of justness that comes with living by your convictions and doing what you think is right against wrongdoing and less-than-well-intentioned institutions like the government at times. But as enjoyable and satisfying as it can be, protest can also be dangerous and often has powerful enemies like the media, government, and the forces of order that play their own parts in the process. In conclusion, protest is an art. I mean this in the sense that it is a creative and complicated genre of expression, performance, and action with its own established conventions and social complexities. 
It comes in many different forms. It implicates a variety of participants and stakeholders, changes and evolves over time through conflict, cooperation, and technological advancement. And most importantly, it engenders discussion, opposition, and both constructive and destructive consequences. I finished off my interview with Barb, Arthur, and Bob, artists in their own right, by discussing their more recent work and why they've stuck with activism for so long. 